1: one of the most famous and important figures in of course in Roman history but also more broadly really in history full stop. Julius Caesar had a profound impact on the history of Rome obviously being a pivotal figure in its transition from a republic to an empire and even though he didn't live to see it become an empire he laid a fair bloody bit of the groundwork that got Rome across the line in becoming an empire let me tell you that and of course his actions in establishing what would later become, of course, the the Roman Empire, echoed throughout history, and his legacy, you know, lives through to this very day, as we'll discuss as we get stuck in. Anyway, he his story is an interesting one. He started off as a as a pretty unremarkable fellow, really, born into a, a house of you know middling nobles. He uh, he worked as a priest, he worked as a soldier, as a lawyer, worked as a government bureaucrat before deciding in his early 30s that he he actually really wanted to make something something of himself. And so from that point onwards, he worked to rise through the ranks of the Roman government, eventually all the way to the top, becoming consul before conquering most of Gaul, bringing it into into Roman territory. It's modern-day France. And then from there, of course, you may know this, he famously triggered a civil war when the Roman Senate demanded that he abandon his post as governor in Gaul and return to Rome. And look, in fairness to old Jules, he did return to Rome, not exactly as he was asked to, but he did return to Rome at the head of an army that helped to install him as its undisputed leader. From there, he instituted a bunch of populist political reforms that, uh, well, I mean, you know entrenched his position as the unopposed leader of Rome and also laid the way paved the way for his successor Augustus to become Rome's first ever emperor after Caesars uh, after Caesar was of course very famously assassinated on the Ides of March in, uh, in 44 BCE. But look all this and so much more on today's episodes by its end you'll uh, you'll hopefully have a, a fuller understanding of who this fellow was, uh, what he did, why it mattered and why even today he's such an important figure from history and and I'll tell you this as well before we get stuck in. We've got a very good record of this bloke's life, too, because unlike certain other legendarily famous Italians from history, Leonardo da Vinci, episode 204, get across it, uh, Caesar did, in fact, write extensively about himself and his life. So we actually have a very good idea of what this bloke was all about because of the words that he himself wrote. So let's get into it. Let's get stuck in, begin the story of Julius Caesar. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the year 100 BCE, to the 12th of July, when Gaius Julius Caesar was born, or as he would have been called in Latin, Gaius Julius Caesar. Um, now he wasn't, as you might have thought, born by cesarean section. One of his ancestors may have been this. Could, this could have been what resulted in the in the cognomen Caesar for his family, but even that is doubtful. We don't really have the don't have a rock solid uh, understanding of of where where the word cesarean section actually comes from the etymology of that is is a little uh uh, is still a little foggy um oh and sorry i also forgot to mention uh, of course quick reminder we're before the common era this episode uh we'll be counting years down not up caesar was born in uh, 100 bce the next year after his birth was 99 bce not 101 uh so keep that in mind anyway Caesar was born into a wealthy patrician family, the patricians being the, the ruling class throughout the history of Rome, although less so by the time young Jules was born in the late Roman Republic. At this stage, Rome's territory is vast, uh, although it's obviously it's going to you know be getting get a lot bigger before the end of this episode, don't you worry about that. But Caesar's dad, whose name was also Gaius Julius Caesar, just to make things really confusing um caesar's dad had done all right right he, he was the governor of the roman province of asia uh his mum aurelia also came from a powerful family and so caesar had you know obviously a pretty privileged life uh, growing up as a as a as the son of a, of a middling noble who was in a decent amount of had a decent amount of political clout to him however in 85 bce when caesar was just 16 years old his old man died right and this left caesar as the head of the family just 16 years of age uh, and it left him at the head of the, fa- the head of family at a time of great political turmoil in Rome. You're, you you might remember back uh, from episode 175, Marcus Licinius Crassus, get across it, uh, the conflicts between the Marians and the Sullans, right, two political factions that absolutely bloody hated each other. They're ongoing at this point. And you also might remember how Crassus picked the winning horse. He backed Sulla and helped him win the war with the Marians, Well Caesar and his family they weren't so lucky they were aligned with the Marians and oh look to begin with it was fine the Marians had the upper hand Caesar got a terrific position as a high priest of Jupiter married the daughter of one of Marius's allies terrific stuff for him but then Sola cracked back in wiped the floor with the Marians and as you'll remember came after the Marian uh, or or the allies of, uh, of Marius after he died. Now this included Caesar himself of course And so he fled Rome, seeing the writing on the wall, he didn't want to suffer the retributions of the Sullans, and so he fled Rome and joined the army. He headed all the way to Anatolia and uh, served with distinction as part of the Roman army as well, and and this was a wise move for him. He got out of Rome at the right time, um, and it enabled him to return to the city safely in 78 BCE after Sulla had died. Now, of course, Caesar had you know, he'd lost his family's fortunes. We heard how people like Crassus seized all of the Marians' wealth for themselves uh, after this civil war had sort of settled. But Caesar rolled up his slip. Well, he didn't roll up his sleeves, did he? he rolled up his his toga. No, nope, that's a bad. No, nope, don't, definitely don't do that. He. What I'm trying to say is, he got he got his nose to the grindstone. He got stuck in. He got back to work. He wasn't going to let something as 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 trivial as the loss of an entire family fortune hold him back from success. And so he began work as a lawyer, and he seemed pretty bloody good at it as well. He demonstrated quite a talent for passionate speeches as he went after corrupt government officials. But look, at this point in history, he's still a relatively minor figure in the grand scheme of things, right? He's just, he's, he's still a bit of a nobody. And that is what makes this next story about him all the funnier. You might have heard the story of Caesar and the pirates, but if you haven't, strap yourselves in. It is, a, it's a very, very funny story. In the year 75 BCE, Caesar's 25 years old. He was sailing across the Aegean Sea to visit Rhodes when he had a bit of bad luck his ship was attacked by pirates and he, as someone of, you know, obviously noble birth based on his bearing, his, uh, his deportment and the clothes he was wearing, uh, he was taken prisoner and he was held to ransom. The pirates very cleverly realised that this bloke was probably going to be worth a bit of money. But here's the thing, when the pirates took Caesar back to their hideout on an island, right? And when he found out that they were only asking, they were asking for just 20 talents for his safe return. He couldn't believe it. He was, he laughed in their faces. He, he told them, he said to them, listen, mate, I'm worth so much more than that. Ask him for at least 50, at least 50 talents I'm worth. Very strange bit of negotiation, you know, demanding your kidnappers ransom you for more money. It's not often that that happens, I imagine. But it only got weirder from there because Caesar just didn't behave like he was a prisoner of the pirates. Quite the opposite, in fact. He ordered them around. He put them through military drills like he was their commanding officer. He, I mean, at night, he forced them to go to bed at a reasonable hour so he could get some sleep. You know, no staying up, partying, and having a carrying on. No, he needed a good sleep. He would also sit all these pirates down and force them to listen to poems he'd written or speeches that he was practising, and if they didn't like his performances, he'd absolutely excoriate them. He'd, he'd, he'd call them bar- barbarians and Philistines, no appreciation of the finer things, that sort of stuff. I mean, look, Jules, mate, they're pirates. What do you expect? But the other thing that he did routinely, and this is, this is the part that's really funny, is he would routinely threaten them with crucifixion. He would tell them that once he was ransomed, he was going to return with an army. He was going to string them all up on crosses. And the pirates just kind of laughed it off. They just think that this weird noble who's been bossing around, you know, they're kind of indulging and being like, all right, whatever, mate, you you know, just a bloke who's, you know, just slightly off his trolley here. But Caesar was, as it turns out, a man of his word. Because once the ransom was, was duly paid, Caesar sailed to the nearby town of Miletus, right, he got together a group of ships and soldiers, sailed back to the island, and he took all the pirates captive. Now, he sailed them back to Miletus on these ships, he presented them to the governor and said, Listen, mate, I've captured all these pirates for you, Don't you know, don't need to thank me. And the governor, for some reason, I wasn't really able to find out why, but the governor didn't seem too keen on punishing these pirates. Again, I don't know why, but the governor, the governor his response was not satisfactory to young Julius Caesar here who then says, well, look, if you want something done properly, do it yourself. And he goes ahead and just crucifies all the poor pirates himself. Although he did show them a little mercy, maybe, you know, as as a thank you for listening to all of his poems and speeches and whatever else. He did cut their throats once they'd been strung up, so, you know, they... They wouldn't suffer so so generous of him, so kind, don't you think? Anyway, this is obviously you know it's a great story about Caesar, and when it's told, you often think, oh well, yeah, I mean, of course, of course, he did that. He's Caesar, mate, got his legions, most powerful man in Rome. Of course, he's going to negotiate his uh, his ransom up. Of course, he's going to take retribution on these pirates that uh, that ransom whatever. But no, at this bloke, he wasn't part of the military, wasn't even part of the government. He was just some bloke. He was just a lawyer, right? <laughs> but apparently, a lawyer who was very determined to keep his promises. It seems anyway. A few years after the affair with the pirates, uh, Caesar began to get into politics, right? He was, uh, he was elected as a military tribune and an equista, which is just a fancy financial order, to basically attack, a tax inspector, uh, in 69 BCE. And this was the same year that his first wife died. Uh, after her funeral, he moved to Hispania. He continued working there. And it was in Hispania that something happened to Caesar that would not only change his life, but also change the course of Roman and, I suppose, world history. Because in Hispania, Caesar came across a statue of Alexander the Great, who, of course, we talked about very recently, episode 201, get across it. But Caesar was 31 when he came across this statue. And, of course, as you know, after having listened to that episode, Alexander was just 32 years old when he died. Now, seeing this statue and thinking about Alexander's monumental achievements in his relatively short life, uh, this had a profound effect on, on Julius Caesar. He felt a burning desire to do more, achieve more, make more of his life. I mean, when Alexander was 31, he had conquered most of the known world, while Caesar at 31 was basically a government buddy pencil pusher, right? And so this encounter with... Alexander's statue and this reminder of Alexander's greatness, apparently, I mean, it really had a very deep, profound effect on Caesar, who, as I say, was determined to make something of himself. He remained in Hispania for another couple of years until 67 BC, but after he returned to Rome, he sought to very swiftly advance his political career. He was elected as a curule aedile, and this was just, I mean, it doesn't sound like much. He was basically a public, a public official in charge of festivals. But i tell you what he made. He made the most of it. He didn't muck around. He put on some terrific games and festivals. People bloody loved him for it. This went a long way in getting his name out there because people ultimately learned that this this young fellow, Julius Caesar, was, uh, was in charge of putting on some of these terrific festivals that everyone was enjoying so much. And and this sort of thing would remain very much a characteristic of Caesar's overall political philosophy. He was essentially just a populist. He, he, he always was. I mean, we'll explore this uh, in, in greater detail later on in the episode. But he, he was a populist through and through. And at this point in his career, he was nailing the circuses part of the populist bread and circuses routine. He also sought to build, you know, useful political connections. He he got married for the second time in in sixty seven BC. He married the granddaughter of Sulla. This marriage didn't last; it wasn't as, as fruitful as he may have hoped. They were divorced in a couple of years. But he continued to work in his political career, you know, from his as a successful successful public of, uh, official. Uh, but then from there, of course, he had his eye on much higher targets. Uh, in uh, in sixty three BC, he ran as the Pontifex Maximus, the head of the Roman religion. Uh, he won that election, and uh, it's widely it's widely agreed that he just bribed his way to victory. But a win's a win; counts on the scoreboard, and his career, his career continued on the up and up. In 62 BCE, he became a praetor, a powerful magistrate, uh, and he was sent off to govern western Hispania. However, He couldn't leave Rome to take up his new position as a praetor just yet because he was in quite a bit of debt at this point. I mean, bribes aren't cheap, are they? And don't forget, he'd lost his family fortune and still was attempting to live the life of a a lavish noble. So who stepped in to cover Caesar's debts, or some of them at least? Who stepped in to support Caesar in his time of need in exchange for political support from this young up-and-comer? It was, of course, Marcus Licinius Crassus, the richest man in Rome. And this was the beginning of the political alliance between these two blokes that would obviously go on to be so fundamentally important in the, uh, the history of the late Roman Republic. Anyway, with his financial affairs looking a little bit better once Crassus stepped in, Caesar headed off to Hispania, and uh, there he went above and beyond—not uh, just governing the area that was assigned to him. He conquered new parts of the Iberian Peninsula, uh, attacked and, uh, and and subjugated various Hispanic tribes, and therefore, I mean, improved his public standing quite significantly as a conqueror. This began to build a base of fantastically loyal troops around him as well. And by 60 BCE, there is enough wind in this bloke's sails for him to for him to run for consulship. This is the highest political office in the Roman Republic. There were always two well, I say always. We'll change that in a little bit. But for now, there were always two consuls in office at any one time, each elected to one-year terms. And after his you know after his last couple of years kicking goals with both feet, everything you did, putting on the bread and the circuses, going and conquering parts of Hispania, bribing people to the way to the top of elections, whatever else. He won the 59 BCE election alongside another fella whose name was Marcus Bibulus. Now, Caesar did win this election with the support of Crassus and, you know is again widely agreed that mountainous bribes were paid in order to secure the victory for himself i mean there's a lot of talk these days about rigged elections and fake results and all the rest of it well i tell you what it's not new caesar didn't care about any of this sort of stuff he greased whatever palms needed greasing to ensure he got the w and in 59 bce he is duly well i say duly he is unduly i guess elected consul anyway after ta- after taking the consul the consulship here, Caesar moved to shore up his position. We've talked about the First Triumvirate in the show before, and Caesar put a lot of work into bringing this First Triumvirate about. Caesar and Crassus were already already politically aligned, of course. But Caesar realised that if he could bring another powerful politician on side with the two of them, a bloke whose name was Pompey, then the three of them would be untouchable. Between the trio, they could completely control Roman public affairs, combining their political influence, their military power, and their vast wealth. The only issue is that Crassus and Pompey hated each other's guts, and so it was Caesar who had to put in a lot of work to reconcile the two. But he did, and he sealed the deal on this on this first triumvirate by marrying his daughter Julia, to Pompey, right? This this was something that, that brought these blokes together and made sure that they were linked in more ways than just the political. And Caesar also married again around this time, for the third time, marrying a woman named Calpurnia. But with a strong with such a strong grip on power here, Caesar moved quickly to shore up his position even further and in, in a few different ways, right? As I say, these three blokes had a stranglehold on, on power within the Roman Republic. But Caesar found ways to exert even more influence and expand his power even further. He got rid of his co-consul, Bibulus, by having him forced out of the forum by an armed gang. And Bibulus obviously is, you know, (laughs) doing his best to resist what's happening to him, but he was strong-armed out of the building. And once outside, he was, I mean, it's not very nice what happened to him, to be honest. He was beaten up and then had a bucket of turds upended over him, which is, you know, not great for your public image as you're trying to go around as a dignified statesman. In fact, Caesar was so effective in removing Bibulus from political relevance that people at the time joked that 59 BCE's one-year term was the consulship of Julius and Caesar because there were always two consuls and this time around the first one was Julius, the second one was Caesar. That's, that's how sideline Bibulus became. And in the wake of this, the triumvirate moved very swiftly to cement their hold on power here. Pompey marched troops into the city, Crassus bought off opponents that couldn't be intimidated by the troops, and Caesar enacted an unswervingly populist policy agenda. Caesar was a member of the political faction known as the Populares. This was a populist group. They stood at, uh, they stood against the, the the elitist optimates. And look, there's a lot of debate as to how formal these two political groups were. I'm not going to call them parties because they don't really seem to have functioned the way that political parties do today. It's probably going to be misleading to talk about them like that. But essentially. The popularis were on the side; oh, they were populists. They're on the side, you know, of the common folk. They were they were standing up for the uh, for the for the for the rights and uh, for, the, for the interests of, of of the people who couldn't do it for themselves. Uh, and of course, you know, a lot of the time they advanced their own agendas on behalf of uh, the common man, as they like to say. And they were opposed again; they were opposed to the optimates, who were the long-standing, heavily entrenched elite ruling classes. So kind of doesn't matter which horse you back here, we're talking about a bunch of very power-hungry and ambitious individuals, regardless of the excuse that they're using in order to try to project that power, but Caesar definitely on the popular side of things. And he furthered the political agenda of the popularis by attempting to bypass the power of the Roman Senate wherever possible. This was a a cornerstone of of the the policy of the popularis. They They attempted to constantly undermine the political power of the ruling elite. And uh, by weakening the position and the influence of the Roman Senate, all in the name of the people, of course, Caesar gathered more and more power for himself. He began to publish the world's first ever daily newspaper, the Acta Diurna, which gave him a mouthpiece to gain, you know, gain further popular support. He could sway public opinion using the, uh, the Act of Diurna. Uh, and, and the things that he did, this, this policy agenda I talked about, these were all aimed at endearing himself to the people. Things like giving away government-owned lands to the poor, which honestly, you know, isn't a bad move on paper. But the other side of the coin here is that Caesar was just corrupt as anything, as any good populist is, and he knew that once his term as consul was up, he would be in big trouble when the paper trail came unravelled, when his political opponents sought to prosecute him for his corruption, because, I mean, half of him being in government was about him bettering his own position, making more money for himself and ensuring that he left, I mean, you know, maybe he leaves Rome better than he found it, that's not his priority. His priority is to make sure that his hip pocket is certainly in a better place than he he found it when he entered the consulship. Now, because of this, and as, as I say, because he knew he'd face prosecution as soon as he became a private citizen once again, once his one-year term was up, he knew he had to do something. So what did he do? Well, with the help of the First Triumvirate, he appointed himself as the governor of the Roman province of Gaul. And the reason he did this was because provincial governors were immune to prosecution. No one could touch him while he was the, the, the governor of Gaul. And in order to, to, to really make a sure thing of it, he didn't just give himself a regular gubernatorial term of one year. No, he gave himself five years. He gave himself five years as the governor of Gaul, which he assumed would be enough for him to weasel his way out of the many problems that he would face at this point were he to become a private citizen and, and you know, open to prosecution once again. But then on top of that, he was in control of four legions, which is, I mean, you know, Another way to make yourself pretty politically untouchable, just surround yourself with an enormous, essentially private army. So Caesar is in a very good spot as his consulship comes to an end. The only issue for him is that he is still just balls deep in debt. But no worries, because there is no end to the ways that an ambitious and highly corrupt provincial governor could make money. And this was another reason that Caesar sent himself off to Gaul. It wasn't just for power and prestige and also to avoid prosecution. It was also because he knew he'd be able to line his pockets, and he did exactly that. And the method he chose to enrich himself after becoming the governor of Gaul, as you may very well know, was conquest. A lot of money to be made in war. He immediately got on the front foot, he mobilised his legions, he marched into the parts of Gaul, modern-day France, that didn't yet belong to Rome... And he conquered tribe after tribe after tribe, dispatching any who resisted and expanding Roman territory swiftly and decisively, and of course, giving himself and his men plenty of opportunities for loot and plunder. And he didn't just fight Gaulish tribes as well. He fought Germanic tribes too uh, in, in 55 BCE, later on as well in 53 BCE. Some of the Germanic tribes decided that they wanted to get, on, get, get in on the action while all this conflict was continuing between the Gauls and the Romans. Perfect time for them to cross the Rhine and start raiding into this, uh, you know, this area of warfare. And Caesar didn't like this at all. He taught them a sharp lesson. In a remarkable feat of engineering, he actually built two bridges across the Rhine River, one in 55 and one in 53 BCE. And his forces returned the favor. They crossed the river and raided and pillaged and burnt Germanic villages, just as the Germanic tribes had been doing on the other side of the Rhine. Now, the tribes had thought themselves safe on the other side of the river. They had thought the river would protect them from a large-scale military action on the part of the Romans or anything else like that. But Caesar showed them just how wrong they were with that assumption. He showed them that the river meant nothing to him and that he would have his retribution. And so after building these bridges, after building a bridge, crossing over, raiding, pillaging, whatever else, he crossed back over, disassembled the bridges, and showed these tribes in no uncertain terms that he wasn't to be messed with. This is the first time in here, it may not sound like much, you know, building a bridge, crossing a river, but this is the first time in history that the Rhine was ever crossed with a bridge. And the bridges that he built, they were marvels of engineering. The Rhine, as you might know, it is both very wide and very deep, but Caesar crossed it Maybe this is an over-the-top comparison, but what Caesar did is kind of like rocking up with an aircraft carrier when your opponents still think that, I don't know, like a tank is a pretty neat piece of military engineering. The ability to project power like that into somewhere that was so unexpected and so unanswerable as well it really showed that Caesar was, I mean, a fair way ahead of his time when it came to, you know, his, his, his military, his, his strategic and
0: tactical genius. Anyway. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewellery gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Caesar continued his uh, his conquest of Gaul and at a couple
1: of points even actually raided uh, Britain. He crossed the English Channel and, and made some raids into Britain, although he, he didn't stick around there too long and I mean who can blame him honestly uh, although it's, it's actually it wasn't actually for the reasons you think it wasn't because the weather's rubbish uh, it was because the situation in freshly conquered Gaul was it was just too unstable it was too unstable for, for Caesar to try to expand his territory even further even further north into Britain it just really wasn't feasible particularly in 52 BCE when the Gaulish king Vercingetorix united the Gaulish tribes and took the fight to Caesar. Now, despite winning the Battle of Gergovia against Caesar, Vercingetorix lost the decisive decisive Battle of Alesia, and Caesar's conquest of Gaul now, at this point, was finally complete. So, huge moment for Caesar. He has taken, you know, governorship of this province and expanded it enormously. Roman territory now now covers most of modern-day France. But as Caesar had done this, the, the political landscape had shifted back in Rome and was still... In a period of rapid change as Caesar completed his conquest because Crassus, as you might remember, was killed in 53 BCE and the political alliance between Caesar and Pompey steadily disintegrated in the years after Crassus' death. A bitter rivalry grew between the two. Pompey became determined to undermine the, by now, quite considerable power that Caesar was amassing for himself as a conquering hero. And between 52 and 50 BCE, both Caesar and Pompey built up their armies. It looked like they were going to go to war with their you know, respective political factions backing them up, Caesar with the Populares and Pompey with the optimates. And the Senate, which, uh, over which uh, Pompey had a fair bit of influence, the Senate demanded that Caesar give up his command, return to Rome as a private citizen. The, the Senate was spurred on by Pompey to do this, who again was attempting to undermine Caesar's position as both a commander and as a politician. And Pompey, uh, in order to you know, send a very clear message to Caesar, began to deploy troops to the nor- northern part of the Italian peninsula to block Caesar's return to Rome with his legion should he choose to to take that route. And as I say, war did seem to be brewing on the horizon. Pompey really wanted to remove Caesar as a threat to his political influence, whereas Caesar... Well, I mean, you know, he wanted to make hay while the sun was shining. He's in a great position. People love him. He's conquered half of, I mean, say half of Gaul, he conquered all of Gaul. And uh, things are going very, very well for him. He's not, you know, he's not of a mind to to give up uh, and and chuck it all away when things are going so well for him. He wants to go back to Rome, run for consul again. And so Caesar knew that while Pompey opposed him, He would never become consul. He knew that uh, that Pompey had too much clout, too much sway in Roman politics and would be able to block his every move or at least frustrate any efforts that Caesar made to rise to power once again as a consul. And so he began to muster his troops in the south of Gaul, just on the other side of the Alps from, uh, from from where Pompey's gathering his troops as well. So the situation really was becoming very, very tense indeed. And after several rounds of failed negotiations, Pompey's hardline supporters in the Senate finally declared Caesar an enemy of Rome. And Caesar responded famously, of course, by crossing the Rubicon. Often you'll hear this phrase today, it is usually used to refer to a situation where something has gone past the point of no return. But for Caesar, crossing the Rubicon River with an armed legion was exactly that. It was the point of no return. It was against Roman law. It marked the beginning of Caesar's civil war as he directly contravened a direct order from the Senate here. And according to ancient historians, Caesar is said to have said, Alea iacta est," or the die is cast in Latin, as he crossed the river. He, this clearly indicates that he himself understood that there was no going back after he crossed this river and illegally marched his troops back into the Roman heartland. Now, Pompey and his troops, after seeing that Caesar had done had, you know, taken this step, had crossed the river, he he ordered a withdrawal. He ordered a withdrawal of him and all of his troops back towards Rome because he expected that that Caesar would march on Rome as swiftly as possible and and attempt attempt to take the capital for himself. However, Caesar didn't do this. He took his time marching south. He captured a few cities on the way, he waited for reinforcements, and very interestingly, He ran this southern campaign with ironclad discipline. While his troops had very much enjoyed the free hand they'd had in Gaul to loot and plunder and bring home all sorts of riches, Caesar explicitly forbade anything like that while they were taking these Roman cities. These were Romans fighting Romans. They weren't to be looted or plundered or anything like this. And this, combined with the fact that he didn't seek bloody retribution on his political enemies as he advanced... Actually, one sees a more supporters. His his ranks grew as he approached Rome. Rather than being seen as this this rebellious upstart who needed to be put down, who's a threat and an enemy to Rome, no, he was seen as a very popular figure, as a hero, a conquering hero coming home, right to to a position of power that was rightfully his. His quote unquote invasion wasn't this violent and barbaric affair that some people had expected to be and many came over to his side as a result they'd heard about his successes and his triumphs in Gaul and they were keen to see him in charge of things back in Rome so Pompey realizing at this point that Caesar had all the momentum and not to mention a huge number of fiercely loyal and disciplined troops uh, Pompey had to sit down and, and think about his next move, right? Because he's gone bloody hell. This bloke, he's got all this po- He's got all this popular support. Me and all the other optimates, we've done everything that we can to shore up the position of the senate and, and you know, over all the other Roman classes, the, the tribunes and the plebeians and everyone. But it, it's not doing. It doesn't do anything. This populist Caesar bloke, he's marching down to Rome and and people are flocking to his side. Pompey goes, I reckon I'm in bloody deep poop here. So what did he do? Did he stand and fight? Did he resist this enemy of Rome as Caesar bore down on the city? Absolutely not. No, he got on a ship and fled to Hispania to save his skin. He, he, he left with his men and Caesar's way to the capital was clear. Caesar chased him, however, he chased him from Iberia to the Balkans to Greece and finally caught up with him and gave him a proper hiding at the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BCE, which of course forced Pompey to flee to Egypt. Now, after this battle, Caesar returned to Rome, where he was appointed dictator, essentially an emergency position only given to someone in a time of special need. Uh, and he named his second in command. This bloke will be very familiar to anyone who listened to the episodes on Cleopatra, episodes 190 and 191. Get across them. It was, of course, none other than Mark Antony. Now, Mark Antony had been left in charge of the Italian peninsula in Caesar's absence after this civil war began, when Caesar was off chasing Pompey up and down the Mediterranean. But he was officially made Caesar's 2IC after Caesar returned to Rome after the Battle of Pharsalus, uh, of as I say. But Caesar didn't remain dictator for very long, only 11 days. He gave up the title and instead held an election for the consulship, which he, surprise, surprise, won very easily. And after having secured himself as Consul of Rome, he continued his pursuit of Pompey, sailed to Egypt, and of course you'll remember what he found when he arrived. From episodes 190, 191, the Egyptians had killed Pompey and they presented Caesar with his head. Now we covered a lot of what happened next in episodes 190, 191. Um, I'm not going to go over it in too much detail. You can head back and listen to those episodes again if you want to. If you want to remind yourself of exactly what Caesar got up to uh, during this time when he was in Egypt, but I'll give you a quick run through here. He arrived, aligned himself with Cleopatra the seventh. For those who are counting, uh, he captured Alexandria. He had to defend it from Cleopatra's brother husband, Ptolemy the thirteenth. Of course, the the bloke. I say the bloke, the kid. Uh, who had ordered the killing of Pompey, remember that? Um, and long story short, Caesar and Cleopatra won, they rooted, they had a kid together, Caesarian, and Caesar had a bloody great time in Egypt. He put on a massive victory parade, he lived in luxury and opulence as, as Cleopatra's, uh, I don't know, what, friend with benefits, I guess? I don't know. Anyway, he's, I mean, he's still married to Calpurnia, don't forget, when he ultimately headed back to Rome and when Cleopatra came visiting, she was Not impressed with Caesar's infidelity, nor were many Romans as well. Bigamy was not looked on too favourably in Roman culture, but hey, I mean, he's Julius Caesar, he does what he wants. Anyway... Despite giving up the title of dictator, Caesar ended up being given the title once again in 48 BCE and he went about fixing leaks in the Roman power structure. There were various rebellions and uprisings, there were malcontents and political opponents, all who needed a good seeing to and that's just what Caesar bloody gave him, mate. He sailed to Pontus on the Black Sea, he utterly defeated its king there and then cruised back to Egypt and other parts of northern Africa to mop up the last of Pompey's supporters and the Optimates. And then finally sailed to Hispania and defeated the very, very last of Pompey's allies, including his sons, finally finishing up his civil war with a complete and total victory in 45 BCE. And things had gone very bloody well for him while the war was being fought as well. He'd been appointed dictator with the term of 10 years. He'd also won a third and then a fourth consulship. And this fourth one in 45 BCE was particularly significant because he won it without a co-consul. It was just Jules by himself, just how he liked it at the top. And what did he do once his position as the supreme unchallenged leader of Rome was assured? Can you guess? Bread and circuses, mate. That's exactly what the people wanted and that's what he gave them. Caesar put on parades and celebrations and festivals and games. He held a huge triumph for himself having won the civil war massive gladiatorial contests were held. A huge battle between 4,000 prisoners of war was staged for entertainment at the Circus Maximus. A large open area of Rome was deliberately flooded, so a full-scale naval battle could be held on it. Caesar pulled out all the stops when it came to spectacular entertainment and people loved it. He also got cracking with his policy agenda. I talked about how it had begun a couple of years ago with his first consulship. Well, his populist agenda got into full swing now that there's no one standing in his way. He strongly centralised the Roman government. He undercut the power of many other political institutions, particularly the Senate, and instead took their powers for himself. And This didn't go down too well with the people who, you know, had enjoyed having that power for themselves. But what were they going to do? There was no way to meaningfully resist this bloke politically. He outlawed opposing political groups. He kept his governors on short terms to make sure that they stayed in line. He filled the Senate with loyal supporters until it was little more than a rubber stamp for his policies. This both outraged traditional senators and also greatly undercut the prestige and the power of the Senate itself because everyone Saw it for what it was, just essentially a room filled with Caesar's yes-men by the end of it. But it wasn't just the Senate that he undercut the power of. It was also other political institutions, for example, like the magistrates, right? He he expanded the number of magistrates that there were. And this, you might think, well, ma- wait, making more magistrates surely just gives them more power. But no, it diluted the power of each individual magistrate by making them share that power amongst many, many more people, And not only did this make every individual magistrate less powerful, it also gave Caesar a much larger selection of people to reward for loyal service. So this was a very clever move on his part in, again, shoring up his political power. And ultimately, Caesar made himself solely responsible for the appointment of magistrates, tribunes, and once he was finished with the office as a long-term dictator, even consuls who he now Outranked. Eventually, Caesar was appointed dictator for life, so he outranked the former highest office in the land, the consul, and so he was able to effectively appoint consuls himself. And this was his stranglehold on Roman politics. He bent the governmental system to his will. He ensured that his position as an unopposed leader remained just that, totally unopposed. And it worked for a a while, at least. I mean, he was. He was able to get a lot done in that time without having to deal with frustrating things like, you know, accountability. Some of the things that Caesar did while he had this stranglehold on power were quite remarkable and, as I say, paved the way for the rise of the Roman Empire. In attempting to further centralise political power, Caesar sought to have Italy itself made into a province of the Roman Republic, and he tried to remove the inconsistencies between the ways that the various provinces in the Republic were administered. Each each province was dealt with in a slightly different way, and Caesar wanted to do away with those differences. He wanted to centralise and unify the entire Roman realm to to be governed by a consistent set of laws. And, perhaps more importantly, be governed directly by Rome itself, not administered individually and separately by all these provincial governors. No, Rome would be the beating heart of this realm, of this empire, I guess you could say. Now, he didn't quite achieve this goal. Something got in the way, as we'll discuss in just a few moments but it, 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 it does go to show how Caesar sought to unify and centralise political power in Rome at the time, and it foreshadows what would happen in the years after his death. Anyway, Caesar did all sorts of other stuff as well. He held a census, he restricted people's access to expensive luxuries, he incentivized population growth by giving financial rewards to people when they had kids, and he forgave a tonne of personal debt held by many Roman citizens by restructuring the debt laws and reforming the way that debt was handled in in Rome. And a lot of these measures were very, very popular indeed. Caesar never stopped being a populist. And these measures, these reforms were not only designed to concentrate political power in his hands, but also designed to generate public approval. And they did. This Firmly consolidated his grip on power for two separate reasons. First, you know, as I say, he's been going around undercutting the other sources of political power in Rome. He's concentrated all of this political power in his own hands by turning the government apparatus inside out effectively to, to further empower himself. But secondly, he's done this with an incredible amount of public support. People love this bloke in terms of, you know, his populist reforms, in terms of getting people on side, bread and circuses and whatever else. People love him. And so, for these two reasons, Caesar's position here, it seems unassailable. But perhaps his most far-reaching reform, and this is sort of zooming out a long way on the actual situation in Rome towards the end of the the late Republic here. Perhaps his most far-reaching reform was the set of changes that he made to the calendar that was used in Rome at the time. Caesar reformed the calendar, he renamed it, it became known as the Julian calendar. And this was the calendar that became the default one for most of the Western world until 1582, when Pope Gregory Thirteenth instituted the Gregorian calendar, which of course Almost the entire world uses today, and uh, as, as something of a of a lasting legacy to to Caesar, uh, one of the months is named after him. July, July is named after Julius Caesar in the same way that August, which originally was called Sextilus, uh, was renamed in honor of Augustus Caesar. So. A little bit of calendar trivia there, which I think you probably saw coming if you knew, you know, we're covering Julius Caesar today. You probably knew that we were going to get involved in some calendar chat at some point. Anyway, by 44 BCE, Caesar has more or less transformed himself into what essentially amounted to a monarch. He was more or less a king. He had distilled effective absolute power over the Roman Republic for himself, and while he was... Publicly unopposed as he went about enacting his reforms, fighting the enemies of Rome, concentrating further power in his hands, he was opposed secretly by a group of conspirators that sought a way to end his reign. The Liberatories, as they were known, they plotted to assassinate Caesar and finally on the 15th of March in 44 BCE they put their plan into action. Marcus Junius Brutus is perhaps the most famous of all the assassins. He was the son of one of Caesar's lovers and he was instrumental in rounding up supporters for the assassination plot. He and the people that he recruited believed that Caesar would ultimately crown himself as King of the Romans and that his murder was the only way to prevent this from happening and to save the Republic. And they chose to assassinate Caesar very deliberately in the Senate building. The Senate chamber itself, this choice was very deliberate. They reasoned that this would be seen as a justified act in, in defence of Rome and the Republic rather than, you know, clandestinely killing him in a dark alley or by poisoning him or something which would make it seem treacherous and dishonourable. And so the senators who were recruited by people like Brutus, the people who were in on the plot, they assembled alongside all of those who were loyal to Caesar on the Ides of March the 15th and they waited for Caesar to arrive. Now, Mark Antony, who had been tipped off about the assassination plot, was too late in preventing Caesar from going to the Senate. Caesar was running late as it was. He'd apparently been warned by a soothsayer that his life would be in danger by the Ides of March at the latest. And his wife, Calpurnia, had woken up that morning after a terrible nightmare about holding Caesar dead in her arms. Now, how much of this is apocryphal and how much of it is... It is true, I mean, remains a matter for some debate, but certainly Caesar went to the Senate building that day, at least knowing that there was some kind of a plot on the wind somewhere, even if he wasn't believing the signs and signals of a a soothsayer. But Mark Antony, despite having been tipped off in this way, and despite rushing to try to save Caesar by warning him was delayed, he was intercepted as the conspirators found out that Mark Antony knew, sent someone to intercept him and make sure that he didn't reach Caesar in time. And so Caesar entered the Senate building and was presented with a petition from one of the conspirators on the Senate floor, uh, which was a pretext for the other conspirators to crowd around Caesar and loudly offer their support for this rather innocuous petition that was presented to him. And as the noise and as the chaos mounted, as all of these conspirators clamoured around Caesar, Caesar attempted to extricate himself from this this mass of senators that were surrounding him, and it was at that point that the conspiring senators drew their daggers and began to stab Caesar over and over, a total of 23 times. Caesar fell to the floor covered in blood, and according to Roman historian Suetonius, he did it without a word. Although, of course, William Shakespeare would have us believe differently, retroactively giving him those famous last words, et tu brute, then fall Caesar, which he definitely didn't say. He may have said, "Kai su technon, which uh, in Greek means even you, son. He may have said this to Brutus, who, you know, as the son of his mistress, he, he quite liked it, a bit of a soft, a soft spot for Brutus. But we don't know what Caesar's last words were with any certainty. We don't know if he said anything at all as he collapsed to the ground. But we do know that his last moments were there on the floor of the Senate chamber, drenched in his own blood as the assassins fled the chamber. Julius Caesar was dead. And rather than saving the Roman Republic, his assassination actually, and directly, brought about its ultimate end. The Roman public were outraged by the assassination. Caesar was a tyrant, sure, but he was a beloved tyrant. And riots spread throughout Rome and the political chaos only grew and grew and ultimately the young man who Caesar named as his heir, Octavian, his, his grand nephew Gaius Octavius, emerged as a leading figure in the civil wars that followed. Octavian, with the, with the help of Mark Antony, fought the Liberatories, ultimately defeated Brutus and his allies at the Battle of Philippi in 42 BCE. But then Octavian and Antony fell out, and Antony allied uh, allied himself with Cleopatra, as you might remember, to fight Octavian, but he, in turn, fell to Octavian at the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, and so Octavian reigned supreme in Rome. And he, of course, went a fair bit further than his great-uncle ever managed to, and finally transformed Rome from a republic into an empire in 27 BCE, becoming its first emperor with the new name of Caesar Augustus. Julius Caesar had gone a long way in transforming the Republic into an empire, with his political reforms concentrating power away from the other various institutions, and Augustus cleverly manoeuvred himself into a position where he held that power for himself, and this time, it stuck. The Roman Empire was born, and it would last until 1453, finally collapsing, with the fall of Constantinople almost 1,500 years later. And the influence of Rome, and particularly its empire on Western history, is impossible to overstate. Everything from language and religion to colonialism and warfare, on top of things like art and culture and architecture and engineering, has all been influenced by ancient Rome. And while he didn't live to see its final result... Julius Caesar was absolutely instrumental in the transformation of the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. And it just goes to show, when we talked about Alexander, I mentioned how remarkable and incredible it was that he did all that he did before dying at the age of just 32. And maybe that made you feel that you passed your prime. Maybe that you missed the boat, that it's too late for you to be an Alexander the Great. But everything that Caesar did, he did after the age of 32, after seeing the statue of Alexander. And so it's never too late, is it? Maybe rather than being an Alexander, you can be a Caesar instead. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Julius Caesar. It's been a lot of fun getting across these legendarily famous figures from history, and there's a lot more coming where that came from. If you've got a a topic suggestion, I'd love to hear it. Someone or something uh, that is you know, we've all heard of from history, but maybe don't know the full story and you want to get across that, please let me know. history.net is the website. There's a contact form embedded into that website. Get in touch with me. That's the best way to do it. Do apologize to all the people who have written in, maybe hoping for responses. I just get too many emails to reply to these days, but I do read each and every single one and all of them are greatly appreciated. So thank you. Speaking of greatly appreciated, all the people supporting me on Patreon, Ah. Oh, My appreciation for them, so great. So, so very great. Thank you to everyone who is uh, supporting me there and gaining access to all sorts of exclusive benefits, not only things like early access to shows, show notes, uh, behind behind the scenes stuff, all the burps and farts that I cut out while I'm recording but also exclusive Patreon-only merch. I've seen pictures of it. Uh, it looks fantastic. If you want to snag some for yourself, it's not too late. You can go and sign up today or tomorrow. I mean, if, you, if you're busy today, I understand. Maybe by the end of the week. It's fine, whatever. Anyway, um, I want to thank all the people supporting me on Patreon and, of course, all the people who are out there in the trenches uh, spreading the word of this dumb podcast, watching those numbers go up and up. Loving it. Absolutely loving seeing that. Uh, so thank you to all the people who are out there telling their friends and enemies and the people about whom they feel largely ambivalent about this dumb podcast. you love to see it. Anyway that is that for another week of uh, half a sister we'll be back next week with more nonsense looking forward to your company then until then leaving with a question of course posed on reddit this one comes to us from reddit historian Erbull, who asks julius caesar got july named after himself when he made the julian calendar why didn't pope gregory put greg ember in the gregorian calendar